father's help to provide a, as, a, as a compass for their children, right? To steer them in the right direction, to help guide them towards a purpose that is meaningful, that is productive for society. And a healthy father would lead them to do something that is productive for the entire society. Um, and they will steer them away from, from negative things, anything that would put their children into danger. Uh, for women, the most important male figure in their life would be their father. He's a non-sexual male figure, and he shows her uh, with, in relationships with her mother how a woman should be treated. So when she moves out into the world and she's selecting a mate, she's not necessarily going after the guy with the shiny car. She's going after the guy with some substance. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the unrepentantly Caucasian white devil, <laughs> Ricky Orpark. This, this is the second time you've called me a white devil, I think. Well, uh, uh, I think people, it, it's, a, it's a message that bears repeating. <laughs> Oh, well, we're talking uh, race relations today, and we've got a great guest from the U.S., uh, Mr. Adam B. Coleman, and he's written a book called um, Black Victim to Black Victor. Great. Adam B. Coleman is the author of Black Victim to Black Victor. He's an op-ed writer, a public speaker, and the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. He writes openly about his struggles with fatherlessness, homelessness, and masculinity. Uh, we're thrilled to have him on the podcast. Adam, welcome to the New Flesh. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Adam, recently, uh, well, fairly recently, singer-songwriter Lizzo made headlines because she twerked on stage playing a 200-year-old crystal flute that once belonged to former US President James Madison. Now, we've got plenty of grassroots uh, uh, questions to cover, but we just thought we'd like to get your take on this situation because in some ways it touches on some of the themes that you've talked about in your book and elsewhere. Is, is Lizzo's crystal flute twerking moment empowering or is it the end of civilization? Um, neither. <laughs> um, sometimes certain things happen and it's not necessarily a representation of everything. Um, you know, one, one person's uh, distasteful behavior doesn't necessarily mean that it's akin to everybody else's distasteful behavior or that it's, it's a, a mark that there's something socially wrong. It could be just that it was just one person doing something. Um, you know, on, like for me, I don't like twerking at all. You know, the whole public twerking thing, I think it's distasteful. Um, and and I sometimes I think they think guys like that, but the vast majority of guys kind of like, eh? you know, they. It, it's not very... It's not very sexy. It's not very likable. Especially, um, I know it's, this is a very specific example. You're on Twitter, so you were saying it. Like, when it's particularly not sexy is, like, during some kind of convenience store riot and then someone gets up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you go, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. The, the whole twerking thing is kind of like a weird, I don't want to say phenomenon, but, yeah, some weird phenomenon as far as just randomly shaking your butt in public. Um yeah, I'm not a personal fan of it. To, to, to be honest, I, I didn't know much about Lizzo before hearing about this story. And when I did a bit of research and I looked, looked into her background, I found out that she was training to become a professional classical flautist before dropping out of college. Um, so I have a lot more respect for her knowing that she can actually play the instrument. Um, but, but I think she's a relevant person to discuss because she talks a lot about being oppressed and sees herself as a victim. Now, some might 
see that studying classical music at, 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 co- at a college level and then going on to the sort of fame that she's achieved should make her the opposite of a victim and perhaps a, a victor even. Uh, classical music is hard and it takes work to master. So how did we get to a situation where it's more advantageous to be, to be painted as, as a victim than a hardworking artist who, who made it? Um, because I think certain people have found uh, power within victimhood. You know, they're looking for affirmation and attention. Uh, and especially in places like Hollywood or in the music industry, you'll get claps uh, for, for pointing out that someone else is doing you wrong, right? Becoming the victim, even if you're not. Um, and, and actually, it's interesting that you're talking about like her background and everything. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine who likes her music. And I'm like, I've never even listened to her music. Like, I'm not even sure if I've heard a Lizzo song. And, and it, but I know of her, and I know all of these things because of the stuff that she's done for attention. And I just think to myself, you don't need to do that. Like, Beyonce, Beyonce doesn't walk around nude to try and get people's attention. She leaves it to her talent. Anytime someone talks about Beyonce, it's because of her concerts, uh, her album, her song. It's her talent that shines through. And yes, she is very attractive, right? But she's not flaunting herself. And with Lizzo, I feel like she has enough talent. Like, I listen, he actually played a song. I was like, I see why people like her musically. And it sounds like she's talented musically as far as, you know, knowing how to play the flute. All this other stuff just seems like unnecessary. Like, she actually doesn't need to do this. Um, and I wonder how much more productive she could be if she focused on her talents more and less about uh, becoming something that she doesn't need to be. Well, b- before we leave uh, frivolous Hollywood and entertainment behind, <laughs> I might, while we're in the suburb, I might as well ask you about this. What, this is coming at it from a different angle. What is the unholy alliance between feminism and maybe the political left and figures like Cardi B, for instance? Have you noticed this? I mean, she was interviewed, we were just talking about this before, um, Biden did this grotesque interview with her and, and, and it, was, it was quite something. But So I'm fascinated by this, um, and uh, you know, this obsession with WAP and, 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 and all of that by the left and, 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 and the feminist, uh, modern feminism movement. You know, it's, it, the feminist movement has, is continually evolving. I remember years ago, for example, they would talk about how... Uh, Porn was used to um, uh, paint women and as like sexual objects, and it, it was an objectification uh, towards women. And now they're like, sex workers are workers. <laughs> like they went from, you know, uh, porn actresses who are doing it legally, <clears throat> now to saying, well, the people who are on the streets who are in you know a lot of danger, they're workers too. Uh, you know, they just they've gone full-blown into sex work, um, and they feel that women's sexuality has no limitations. So, you know, yeah, they, they have no problem with uplifting Cardi B because sexuality is part of uh, empowerment, and it doesn't matter how degenerate it is, you can't tell her how to display her sexuality, you know, but obviously men don't get the same <laughs> the same treatment. If I just whipped out my dong and said, I'm empowered, uh, <laughs> you know, they call the You'd cops on me. So, exactly. Said, mm, so empowering. Yeah, so empowering. <laughs> but, but, but why? I mean, it's, this is so strange because no human being would want their daughter to emulate. 
Cardi B. She's a, a, a crass and a former pole dancer who, who and I, this is a real cheap shot, but I'm sorry. This is just, she comes across as a real dope as well. And um, I don't even get the sense that it's an act as either. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I don't understand. I know we've, we, we live in this bifurcated world where publicly or at your job or something, someone would bring this her up and you've got to sort of go, oh, yes, she's great and that's great. And, and here's a picture of, uh, they'd say, here's my daughter singing along. Oh, that, that's really good. So you've got to say that. But privately in everyone's home, you'd be going home surely saying, Turn that off. That's garbage. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of like the duality of our world. You know, we like certain people in certain respects. And and I think most people would be like, yeah, I like that song, but I don't I don't want you to become that person. Um, so I think most people would actually agree with you. I, I just think that if you look at places like social media, um, that's where the most hyper rhetorical people go. And that's honestly that's where the crazies are so you know the crazies overshadow the rational people like you and me who are like you know i kind of like that song but uh i don't condone her general behavior or her outlook in the world or anything like that so i don't i don't want that to be lost that it's not just you it's a lot of people um and actually to be honest with you I miss those days of separating the, the artist from their personal life and I just not knowing what their personal life is. Um, I'd much rather just hear some song, like the song, maybe buy whatever, and that need to know that they're a drug addict or that they've beat their wife or something. Like, uh, like I really actually don't want to know these things. I never uh, I knew what it, uh, Two Live Crew did behind the scenes. I just thought they, right. they, their songs were, were fun. Right. And for all I know, they went to church, right? Yeah, they probably did, though. They probably did. Yeah. It's just, it was just an act, and they were just having fun. Um, so, but that's the thing. Like, I think we know too much about uh, people who are supposed to be in one particular lane, um, and, and it doesn't allow them to have some sort of private life, private feelings. Like, I'm a huge sports fan. I miss the days of not knowing the, the political beliefs of the athletes. Mm. Like, if I really thought about it, I could probably assume, right? But I liked having that ignorance of not even caring or even knowing. And now, like, the NBA, for example, just went full lives, uh, full Black Lives Matter and, you know, communist fists in the air and everything. And so now I know where they stand and now I can't watch it. Like, it bothers me that mm. I know these things. Um, so I, I miss those days. For sure. Well, perhaps let's leave pop culture there for the moment and let's take a plunge into into your book. Uh, it, it, it opens with a number of provocative rhetorical questions, and I'm going to read out some of our favourites. Um, why did it feel as if my birth created an inconvenience for my father and a burden for my mother? Why is the choice of neglect commonplace for black men? Why are black women forgiven for failing to select better men? Why am I told to distrust the white man when I couldn't even depend on my black father? If the greatest danger to a black man in America is the white man, then why do most successful black people choose to live among them? Why does my pigmentation determine my aspirations? Why must I live in the past with the pain of my ancestors instead of creating a future of hope? Why does wanting aspiration of a racial togetherness make me a traitor? Uh, why do these questions offend you? I, I particularly like that last one, why do, question, uh, why do these questions offend you? Um, but I'd like to know, how did you get to these questions and what was the catalyst for writing your book? Uh, so uh, the questions, um, I originally wanted to write a book years prior 
about questioning things and asking questions. Um, and I sat down for about a day and then I stopped because I had no idea where to go from there. Um, so the, the questions portion of the, of the book, the introduction, is kind of going back to that original thought of just setting a bunch of questions. Um, and actually the introduction was the very last thing I wrote. Uh, I think I wrote all of that in about an hour and a half. So, you know, obviously I wrote the entire book and I had the premise of everything. And then now it's just a time for me to kind of offload all of these different questions and the questions kind of set up for the things that I talk about within the book. But there are questions that I've asked myself and thought about for years. Um, and I just, you know, I kind of just uh, threw it up as I was writing and I finally just was able to get it all out. Um, so, you know, what, what led for me to to uh, write this book was basically the, the events of George Floyd um, and the narratives that came from it. Um, so it was less about George Floyd and it was more about the reaction towards George Floyd. And then it just like spiraled into this entire narrative about me as a black man being constantly afraid of being killed by the police and all this other stuff. And I'm like, no, like if we're talking specifically about black Americans, what's the biggest issue? Uh, it's the family component. and. So I wanted to talk about that and use my, my childhood as an example of what happens, right? And I happen to be someone who was never arrested or went to jail, you know, so I'm not the statistic. And I made it out uh, of that situation, but a lot of people don't. And why is that the case? Why, why are so many young men put in that position to become George Floyds, right? So I, I wanted to talk about that because I think, I think solving that will change everything. If the single parent rate went from uh, somewhere around like 65 to 70%, if it went from 65 to 70% to 35 to 25, you'd be looking at a completely different society. Um, but the reality is it's, it's the inverse and, and it's leading to all different types of real world issues. Um, and I'll, I'll use one example. We like to talk about the amount of gun crime that happens within uh, America, and they're like, America's a violent place. But the reality is, gun crime primarily happens in very specific areas, right? And that's why those numbers look so high. And, and a lot of the times, it's in black majority areas. And who's committing these crimes? A lot of times, they're repeat offenders. Uh, a lot of times, it's gang related. Um, and if you were to narrow down the people who are being arrested for these violent crimes, you look at their background, they're coming from single parent homes. Like, it's just a trickle-down effect, and it, all of it makes sense to me. Um, and, and I wanted to do my best to explain why, because I think uh, even people I agree with, like, you know, the conservatives typically talk about the same type of issue, but I don't think they do good enough a job to explain why that's the case, the trickle effect to getting to that point um, of where it's tearing apart our society, or at least tearing apart certain communities, and no one's doing anything about it, and likely in another 10 years, it'll be the same outcome uh, as the previous 10 years because no one's trying to change anything. So, well, maybe just for a bit of context, because you you mentioned your childhood uh, and the and some of the uh, hinted at some of the adversities you, you overcame. Would you mind maybe just telling us a little bit about that time? Sure. Um, I'm a child of a single parent home. Um, you know, I grew up with my mom and my sister. Um, I rarely heard from my father uh, and, and saw him even less uh, throughout, my, throughout my childhood. Uh, the last time, I, last time I saw my father in person, I was 16. 
Last time I spoke to him, I was 21. Um, I'm 38 today, and my today? father passed away. Yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> oh, no, no, not today. I'm in like... <laughs> okay. Today's not my birthday. I'm just Con- saying. Continue. <laughs> I was so excited. Um, I was like, is it your birthday? Is it us? Anyway, continue on. Sorry about that. You know, I'm, I'm 38, and uh, my father passed away, uh, I want to say it was about five years, four or five years ago now. Um, and that's kind of like, we had this like disconnected relationship um, of, of, of not being involved in my life. Um, we moved around a lot. We were homeless a couple times as a kid. Um, uh, one particular time we were in and out of hotels, staying with people. We stayed with this, this lady who had a room in her trailer for at least a month, I remember. Uh, so it was me, my mom, and my sister staying in a, in a trailer in one room. Um, and the second time we were homeless, we stayed in a homeless shelter. Um, uh, we stayed in there for a little bit. And throughout the entire time, my mom was working. So, you know, we went through all these different things and moved around a lot. And I didn't have any relationship with any men, to be honest with you. Um, and it wasn't until like my late teens where I started being around men more often. Um, and I was uncomfortable because I felt inadequate. Like I didn't, I didn't know like something as simple as sh- shaking a hand. You know, I didn't really shake hands with a lot of people. And men shake hands, and that's something that most guys don't think about. But it was something that I was like, "Am I doing this right?" Like I don't, like I feel inadequate as a man. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say like that's like the overview of my childhood. Um, a little bit of homelessness and and being disconnected from my father. Well, you you could have fallen victim to the all black people are oppressed narrative, given all those adversities you faced growing up, um, but but you didn't. So why why are you different from the majority of other people who grew up in a, in similar circumstances? Like, how did you break the cycle? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with where I grew up. So you know we lived in four states um, before I was 18. I've lived in five states um, in total. But I lived in four states before I was 18. In some of those places, I was the minority minority. Like, I was one of four black kids in the entire school. But my experience was generally positive, right? So I've, I've been in primarily white areas. I've been in racially mixed areas. And so my, my viewpoint on race is that it's not as big of a deal as people want it to be. Um, and this is, you know, back in the 90s. Um, so, you know, and here we are years later, I'm thinking to myself, like, I've, most people in the United States, I don't want to call it a luxury, but they haven't had the luxury to live in multiple areas. And so their viewpoint on America is wherever they basically live at. So if you live in a crappy urban area where there's chaos and all types of stuff, they're like, America is this. But if you live in some uh, suburban area, your viewpoint is different because maybe there's less crime. Maybe people get along. Maybe everything is fine. You're like, America's good. I don't know what they're talking about. And I've kind of I've lived in a, in a bit of all of those areas to kind of see that um, it depends where you live and it depends who you're surrounded by. But this blanket statement that we're all oppressed, uh, at least starting from like when I was a kid in the 90s, um, I think is an exaggeration. I think there may be areas where um, 
there are certain viewpoints held by people that are more prevalent, but this blanket statement that all is this, all are oppressed, or all white people are oppressive, um, no, and actually, I would even go as further as say, um, no side has a, a monopoly on ignorance, right? So whether you're left or right, yeah, there's ignorant people on, on either side. Um, there are racist people on either side. Like, but those people, I feel, are far and few in between. Um, the only thing I talk about uh, when I talk about people who are racist are progressives. And the reason being is because I feel like they have social power, right? So are there skinheads walking around? You know, are you know, the tiki torture guys? Yeah, but those guys have no power. No one, no one gives them validity. No one cares about them, right? But the Hollywood celebrity who comes up and tweets, oh, these poor black people, and, and uses us as like uh, political footballs and, and, and looks down and pities us and convinces other people to see the world the same way they do, right? Um, this, this pitying of black Americans, um, I think comes from a racist place. And I don't like that. And that's why I criticize them uh, a lot. Just to become on a small thing you said uh, a, a little while back, you mentioned that where you live is, is, has informed your view of, of race and, and, and given you perspective there. Do you think also that might extend internationally, as in um, have many Americans, you know, had, well, had the luxury of travelling to, to other countries, for example, and seeing what it means to be, you know, from America or to be black in another country. Because, for example, if you came to Australia, most people would say, oh, here's this Adam, here's this American guy I know. Yeah. And, then we would, and we would leave it at that. Do you know what I mean? Like it wouldn't be, like you, it wouldn't be uh, the same sort of thing as it is in America perhaps. So is this another, uh, perhaps another thing that, that um, would, could change some people's perspective if they, if they had the, 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 the means to do so, to check out some other countries? Yeah, and actually I think a lot of people have the means to do so. They just think it's far more expensive or difficult to do. Mm. Um, so any chance I get, I tell people, travel, and I'll give you tips on how to do it. It's not as expensive as you think. Um, but I've been to Europe multiple times. I think I've been to, where am I at, 10 countries throughout Europe. Wow. Um, you know, ranging from Western Europe, uh, I've been to Central Europe. Uh, the only Eastern European country I, I guess you consider Eastern is uh, Hungary. Hmm. Hungary is considered Eastern Europe. Um, and I've been to Turkey. So I've been in all these different environments. And it's exactly like how you said, people care that you're American, right? There wasn't a, an abbreviation. Um, you know, there wasn't an African-American. There wasn't any of that stuff. BIPOC. And that's actually, <laughs> what's that? BIPOC. BIPOC. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, there wasn't any of that. Um, meeting, for example, I've been to Germany the most. Um, uh, what have I done, like seven or eight times to Germany? Um, and, you know, encountering the people there, uh, if they knew that I was a foreigner, which probably they can guess that I was a foreigner based on uh, how I was speaking German um, or just talking to me, uh, in general, they were like, you know, where are you from? America. Oh, you're American. You know, they didn't say like, oh, you're, you're a black American. Like there, there wasn't any of that. Um, and I appreciated that. Um, and actually for a little bit, and like in the beginning when I started traveling, I kind of resented this, uh, almost want to say pseudo-Americanism, right? This, uh, well, you're, you're an American by extension, you know, but I'm American. And, and I kind of feel like my half of my lineage, because my father is 
This is from Trinidad. But half of my lineage likely goes back farther than a lot of people who don't look like me, right? Um, you know, I look at population numbers all the time. Uh, I think in the, like the 1930s, the, the population number was around 100 million, and we're around 330 million today. So, you know, there's a lot of people who weren't here not that long ago, <laughs> and, and their family lineage is not that long. You know, we have a lot of people who have lineage of people who are immigrants coming to this country, obviously. So for black Americans, for a lot of them, not, maybe not all of them, but for a lot of black Americans, their lineage is, has been American. They've been here for a long time. And this idea that I need to cast that aside and call myself African and reference a, a nation, uh, not a nation, but a, a whole continent that I've never been to, I know nothing of the cultural attitudes, and and or even just to think that Africa is just this one one place that believes one thing, like yes. is, yeah. it, <laughs> you Africa. know, it's just, just Africa, Africa. <laughs> right? It, it's a it's a weird weird thing to me that we're we're almost trained to to cast that aside and see ourselves not really as American, but you're you're an African American, uh, and that's supposed to be the politically correct way of referring to me, but I'm as American as anybody else. And you put me in uh, Senegal and tell me to live there, I'm going to struggle. Why? Because I'm an American. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, you know, I wonder how many generations it'll take before we, we drop that and you guys, you know, just everyone's just American, you know. I mean, I don't know. It probably never happened. It, just just to, to talk a little bit more about your book, it, it, your book challenges the notion that, that, that black people are disadvantaged by historical injustices and systemic racism. And, and the questions you pose seem more connected to culture and class than white supremacy. Do you see the disparities in, in education and, and, and wealth and crime that we see in the black American community as, as somewhat self-inflicted? The educational piece, uh, you know, I use Detroit as an example because I was born in Detroit. And it's like this, this perfect example of how systemic racism is definitely not the issue in Detroit. Um, everybody who's in a position of power is black within Detroit. Um, and, and the school board is overwhelmingly black, right? So the, the white man isn't tearing down Detroit. And matter of fact, theoretically, the white man, we, you know, we can call the state, is constantly bailing them out because they're heavily corrupt. Um, and that is the problem. The failing schools generally comes down to local governance and the corruption that remains in local governance. And no one's doing anything about it. Occasionally, states come in and say, things are so bad, we have to now step in and try to correct things. That only lasts for so long because the same people and the same mentality exists, and then they go back to doing corrupt things. So, you know, that's why I say, like, America's a, a weird place because we have many layers of governance, and you can go uh, 20 miles in one direction and be in a completely different environment um, and be in the same city. Like, it's, it's, it's definitely a weird place to be sometimes. But how much control that lies in local governance, I don't think people recognize and I don't think people objectively think about these things. There are decisions that are made. There's lining of pockets to happen. You know, when a school district fails, they always get bailed out. They always get bailed out either on a federal level or on a state level because they've incentivized failure. 
right? So when, when a school is lagging behind, they say, well, we need to put more money into it because that's why they're failing. And then the same people receive the money and embezzle it, uh, move it to places that they shouldn't. Um, for example, at, uh, I want to say it was like in the 2010s, as Detroit, which has been objectively failing in schooling for decades, they took extra money and built a new Board of Ed building. All right. Or actually, I'm sorry, they had a Board of Ed location. They re started renting out this huge building and put all of this money into renting out this location while still having their old Board of Ed location. Right? So they're about inflating their environment, inflating the Board of Education, inflating government, and not actually doing anything to provide for those kids. Um, and that's not even getting into the, the teachers' unions. So, you know, we have a lot of corruption that happens that is seen as okay, and no one's willing to criticize because the people who are in power look like me. Well, that, that the victimhood narrative, it, it, you know, it robs people of agency and, and control over their lives and puts the power of change in, in the hands of, of organisations or the government, you know, even local governments. Is it too conspiratorial to suggest that the political elite want it this way? Like, what, what do they get out of it? You're right. It can be conspiratorial to just say, like, the elite want us, you know, to be held down. Um, just as it's conspiratorial to say um, all of any group wants to do something in particular, I think that there are, there are political efforts to do things that are malicious, but I think most of the time there are political efforts to do the, the bare minimum, and I think that can be just as malicious, right? To feign concern, right? To do a press conference and say, we're going to do something about it, right? And then do nothing about it, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes the inaction, it, you know, is the malevolent part. Uh, the feigning, like, oh, I hear what you're saying. Uh, we're going to do something about it and never coming back. That's been the repeat behavior. Um, the not doing uh, investigations to find out why certain things are happening. So sometimes it's the inaction that is the malevolent part. Um, sometimes it's the people who think that they must do a lot and doing too much actually hurts. Um, and I think that's what we see a lot with this particular progressive movement that's going on. They think that they have to reimagine education and change everything. And in reality, they're putting in things in place to have people look at each other uh, by how much pigmentation they have in their skin rather than the character that they possess and, and kind of always hyper-focusing on that. Um, you know, like I said, when I grew up, obviously I looked different than uh, the other kids, but that wasn't the thing that we talked about. That wasn't the, the thing that we uh, always referenced. I noticed I was the only black kid in this particular area or whatever, but the, I, we just didn't talk about it. We connected on other things and we just moved forward. And now we're, we're preaching otherwise. And I think that preaching of otherwise is the detrimental thing that's happening within our society, that we must hyper-focus on this. We must have representation. We must do these things. And as, as it may seem like it's coming from a good place, I think for some people it's coming from, um, it's coming from a place of like projecting their own negative feelings about black people or about any other demographic. 
Um, and that's one thing that I've, I've started picking up. It's like, I see this particular progressive movement as an elitist movement. I see it as looking down upon people. And when you're an elitist, it's easy for you to not like people for whatever reason. Maybe they don't have enough money. Maybe they come from this area, or maybe they're black, right? But you pity them, right? And, and, and it's not, uh, I wanna take them and put them in change. It's a different type of mentality. But it's an elitist mentality of, you need me, right? And that's, that's something, the saviorism that exists within our society, that's something that I'm, I'm trying to work out in my next book that I think that is very pervasive. Can we put the, all of these uh, gestures we've seen, I don't know why they've, they've turned up on Twitter again recently, I thought all of this footage of, of white progressives kneeling and bowing and and uh, in big groups as well like like there'll be like a group of awkward like you know sort of black people standing there looking down or india or, or um or native americans or whatever and just and all this sea of white people and crying as well like or wearing like nancy pelosi wearing the 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 sort of the african um garb you know what i mean like on on one knee can we put all of this in the same savior category absolutely absolutely um, saviorism, it shows us, it, it comes up in different ways. Um, I like to categorize it like in, in two categories, or at least how I've thought about it kind of in two categories. You have people who are highly empathetic, um, who want to do better, and they initially come from a good place, and these progressive gestures come about and they grab onto it as a solution to wanting to make a better society, right? But the problem is, um, no matter how good your intent is, the action that you're performing makes you as malevolent as the people who are intending to do malevolent things. So I think that there are a lot of people who are highly empathetic who just switched, right? And I've seen it in my personal life. Um, I, have a, a, I, had a, I had a particular friend who, you know, we used to laugh at the woke. We used to talk about how ridiculous they are. And they're a left-leaning liberal person. Um, but then after George Floyd, everything changed. And I remember having our, our last phone conversation, she told me, well, I just listened to black voices. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you, you realize I'm black, right? <laughs> you know, and it was just, it was the first time she had ever just completely overlooked my perspective on things, right? And I'm not trying to deny it, like, someone may truly believe that there's systemic oppression. I'm not denying that this is what their perception. But what I'm saying is, take mine into account as well, right? And maybe the all-in, we need to change the entire society perspective is a bit overboard. Maybe you should take in other ideas as well. But, but they... But what, sorry, Adam, what, what was in the... What was the, uh, the unsaid part? When she was saying, I listen to black voices and not, you know, and saying it to you, what was she really saying? Like, you know, what was the unsaid, unsaid part? I listen to black voices that need me. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it, th she grabbed onto the saviorism aspect. I'm going to performatively do these things. I'm going to advocate for you, right? But the, the exchange is that you need me. And when you don't need your savior, they don't like that. And so when I'm telling her theoretically, uh, I don't agree with you and I don't need you, to save me, I'm, I'm just fine. I'm actually not oppressed. You know, the, my failures were my own failures. 
uh, or my failures rely around my, my childhood and my upbringing. Those are my failures. And so maybe, just maybe, there are some black people who aren't actually oppressed. And maybe it goes beyond color lines and maybe it goes to a class level. Have you ever considered that? And when it reverts back to, no, you need me, and I now have the solutions, and I must save you, and you reject their saviorism, they don't like that. Um, so, you know, that's the, like you said, the underlying part. That's, that's what they're really getting at. And that's ultimately what led to the ending of our, our friendship. And mind you, this is someone I used to go see their family. I went to Thanksgiving with them. We used to talk for hours on personal relationship. And just like that, they had completely flipped over to progressivism. And, and I'm open, right? If they want to be progressive and, and I become maybe a little bit more conservative or more centrist, I, I have no problem being friends with people, but I could not have a friendship with them as they saw me as someone who was being victimized and I was unwilling to be victimized. Well, I think this 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 brings us nicely onto uh, onto the family and 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 onto fathers in, in particular because I think what you were hinting at there was that it's not necessarily systems big systems of oppression it's it's what's happening in the family that's that counts and and uh, you've got this great quote in your book where you say that the greatest privilege in America is not being white it's growing up with a father and a mother and I, I believe seventy percent of black kids in America grow up in a single parent household. Uh, what do you think fathers provide to a family and to a community? Ooh, I could write a whole book on that. <laughs> um, uh, I would say this, especially for young men, but overall, um, I, I'll, we'll, stick, we'll stick with young men since I'm, I'm, I was a young man. Purpose. Um, I think a lot of people, and especially women, don't understand how important purpose is for men. Men are doers, right? And we have no problem associating what we do with, with part of our identity. And even when we retire, we still want to do something after we retire, right? We're doers. And we start to die when we have nothing to do. You know, I remember being unemployed. And that was like one of the worst times because it's like, what am I here to do? Besides like the economics of it, of not having enough money, like you feel worthless, because you're not doing anything to contribute to society. There is no purpose for you to be here. You're, you're a purposeless man. And that is how we kind of see things a lot of times. And not giving us purpose um, leads us to seek out negative purpose, right? So there's positive and negative, and we'll find purpose in anything as long as we are feeling some sort of fulfillment. And the people who don't have purpose for a long period of time, off themselves, right? that's usually where they've come to a point where they have no purpose, they feel disconnected, they have no association with anyone, and they, they take that step. Um, but it's very important for men to have purpose. And then when we look at, let's say, gang violence, for example, we, I was talking about gun crime, a lot of that is gang violence, um, or in, in gang-riddled areas. These are young men without purpose. These are young men who are holding on to some sort of purpose within their community, and they're looking for some sort of male guidance. And they're just lost boys leading other lost boys, right? And they may performatively, or uh, let's say outwardly look like men, but internally, they're lost, right? They're lost boys. They, they're lost boys, and now they're lost men. And they're trying to 
find some sort of purpose into what their life means um, and, and grab a hold some sort of association, some sort of connection. To get to your original question, fathers help to provide a, as, a, as a compass for their children, right? To steer them in the right direction, to help guide them towards a purpose that is meaningful, that is um, productive for society. And a healthy father will lead them to do something that is productive for the entire society. Um, and they will steer them away from, from negative things, anything that would put their children into danger um, or minimizing their danger. So I think that is one huge thing that I didn't have when I was a kid, which is why I felt so lost in my late teens and early 20s trying to figure out what do I want to do. You know, I didn't go to college. Um, I went to tech school because I liked computers, but I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't know what to turn that into. So it took a lot of figuring out, whereas I have my son and I'm here to help him. I'm here to, to give him confidence as far as what he wants to do. I'm also here to, to keep it real with him. Say, you know, because he wants to do animation in Japan. That's incredibly tough. So you might fail. And I've said this to him, but you should go for it. And I want to do everything possible to help you get to that point. So I'm being supportive of it. How would he be able to do that without me if he just had his mom? Um, and, and she's busy doing her own thing. And as she'd be a single mother working jobs and not being there to help foster what he wants to do for himself when he becomes an adult. So I think purpose is, is a huge, huge thing, especially for young men. For women, I'll just summarize real quick. Uh, for women, the most important male figure in their life would be their father, right? Because he is he's a non-sexual male figure, and he shows her by, uh, with, in relationships with her mother how a woman should be treated, you know, this is, of course, always assuming this is a positive situation. So I would never advocate for children to be around unhealthy parental figures. But in a positive situation, the father displays what men do and how they treat uh, women. So when she moves out into the world and she's selecting a mate, she's not necessarily going after the guy with the shiny car, right? She's going after the guy with some substance. Right, Because even if that shiny car looks nice and she talks to him and she hears how he speaks and he doesn't sound like her father. right? And so now you can imagine the women who grow up with no male figure, who grow up in a world where they don't consider how men think, uh, where they don't know uh, how to detect the bad guys that exist in our society. You know, that is a problem. And they become the lost girls who end up having children with men who are disinterested who end up being physically assaulted because they chose the wrong guy, right? Their father is there to be performatively as the man who helps to protect them in the future. And hopefully uh, instills in them that hitting the pole like Cardi B is not, not <laughs> what we should be doing. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, to get more serious, 70%, uh, it's, quite, it's la this is a large number of, of absent fathers. So... Uh, what, what what is behind this this huge number? I know that's a, that's a big sky question, but so what, what what can we say is behind this perhaps? And and uh, has this changed over time? Because I'm led to believe that in the in you know the 30s, 40s, 50s of the 20th century, this this was not uh, the case. 
uh, a lot of conservatives like to say, you know, it's the welfare state came in. Did that play a part? Sure. But I think maybe stemming from that became a cultural attitude change in the injection of feminism. Um, you know, I think today the biggest issue is feminism. I don't think it's the government or the state coming in and, and welfare. Um, I think feminism exists because the same, the same attitude that we see from purple, pink hair, college students who talk about the patriarchy, they sound just like a lot of the black women that I grew up around or that I've seen in public or I've seen, you know, I've overheard, they say the same type of stuff um, and their behavior displays it. There is a, there's a very antagonistic um, type of relationship between a lot of black women and black men. Obviously not all, but there is this uh, slight. It's, it's this, it's this heavy-handed slight that exists. And when a, when a black man does something that they don't like, Right, right or wrong, you know, if he was in the right or wrong, doesn't matter. If he does something that they don't like, they're like, I knew that was going to happen because you guys are like this, right? It's this very, it's like standing on the edge of the cliff, and when the wind comes, you're like, I knew the wind was going to come, right? They're, they're expecting it, and they're purposely putting themselves in that position. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of tension. Um, whether you can you can go on YouTube and listen to relationship conversations between black men and black women, um, you can you hear a tension, right, that that exists there, and I think a lot of it comes from from the female perspective, um, uh, being in a position of not being able to rely on their father. Um, they didn't grow up with a father figure and saw men as an equally important. Uh, peace to the family. And so when you grow up disappointed that your first important male figure let you down, well, guess what? You're going to think men in general might let you down. And then you start having a negative attitude. And don't get me started on the educated ones, because then they go to college and they get introduced to feminism, which validates their animosity towards men. Right? So you have all of these different things that exist within our society. It just becomes a general cultural attitude. right? And I call it the matriarchy because they're the ones who are in power. They're the ones who are in power with our relationships. Uh, they're the ones who have the loudest voices uh, amongst black people uh, in the media, uh, movies, you name it. It is a very female-centric society. Um, and then our, our men didn't grow up around, a lot of men didn't grow up around their father figures. So they don't see men as being as equally important. So they pedestalize the women, right? They become our queens, right? And we, we have this, like, this weird matriarchal uh, viewpoint. Like, we always talk about the patriarchy, but we have like a weird matriarchy uh, viewpoint. And I don't think it works. I just don't. I, I don't see happy people. I see highly tense, uh, just talking from a relationship, uh, male, male to female interpersonal relationship, I see a lot of animosity. I see a lot of negativity that exists um, in, the, in the black cultural space. Now imagine you're, so, you're supposed to procreate with this person. <laughs> like, it just only gets worse. So I think feminism, to answer your question, I think feminism is the driving force to the family separation today. Yeah, well, we, you know, we seem to have reached a point in feminism where, where 
equality is 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 no longer the goal but but superiority you know and um you know and 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 you you mentioned the words queen and diva just just a minute ago like you know i think uh that's interesting that that black women sort of are, are being propped up whether they're doing it themselves or or the people around them to 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 be viewed as queens and divas and these these sort of terms that get get thrown around um do, do you think that though that that sort of propping up is and and to sort of you know project them above men or to be superior to men is really detrimental to the community. Oh yeah, it's detrimental to our entire society. Um, as as much as we're talking about the 65 70 percent single parenthood rate, um, the United States in totality has the highest single parenthood rate in the world, right? So we're disproportionately high, but this is an American problem. Um, all demographics, and that particular attitude of seeing men as optional, um, women as being superior, um, it, it goes down to the entertainment that we see of men being either buffoons or uh, or oppressors, you know. And there is no there's no middle. Uh, you can see it in our movies where there's not a lot of hero movies unless they're fictional characters, right? Um, as far as real men just being real men, just being realistic in our world, they're always um, a little bit castrated. I think that's the best way of kind of putting it. Um, and we're not <laughs> we allowed to talk, say... We always talk about the scene, <laughs> Adam, do. where like, we expect... I went to see Maverick and I expected there to be this scene where he's in the bar and like some chick... Um, like like some guy steps to him and then some chick like axe kicks the guy out of the way and like humiliates Maverick and says and then Maverick's got to say like oh whoa where, where did you learn how to do that so yeah. we were spared that scene <laughs> but I was ready for it <laughs> exactly um, actually I need to see that movie I keep saying I'm about to watch it I need to see it it, it, it yeah. is surprisingly good yeah yeah but but isn't it interesting that you know feminism says that everything about men is toxic and bad, but in order to succeed in in life, you know, in life and and to have a fulfilling life, that they need to live and act like men. You know, I mean, I, I don't understand how this works. Like, you know, where, where does this come from? Well, that's the thing. Um, feminism is the most anti-woman ideology that exists, uh, and and I really wish people understood that because it's one thing. That's why I say like their subversion. I think in, in many ways is more malicious than something that's upvert, uh, overt, I'm sorry. Um, subversion doesn't have to grab you and hold you down and force you to think a particular way. It just convinces you, right? So it convinces you that your natural way of being is actually wrong and you need to change your natural way of being. Um, and you need to performatively become more like this, which is unnatural. And that's why you see uh, the behavior of people who look unhealthy, they look unnatural. That's why like, we, we, we joke about the screaming feminist, right? But she's highly entrenched in that world and she visibly looks unhealthy. You know, whether I agree with her or not, you're like, why is that the case? You see the before and after feminism videos that go around, um, but there's something to it. There's something about becoming something that you're actually not in confusion and how confusion leads you down unhealthy paths. Um, and then you see almost like, a, like a, re a drug recovery. When they escape feminism, they look happier. They look healthier, right? They lose weight, they, they have color back in their skin, right? And, and I think there's something to it. When you possess an ideology that is angry, resentful, 
always looking around the corner, waiting for the next thing. Uh, you know, I think there is something about that unhealthy approach to life. And especially when we tell women that how you naturally want to do things is completely wrong. You must change your nature. Um, you know, it'd be like telling a, a leopard, you must get rid of those spots because that is not actually the way to, to live your life. It is extremely difficult to do that. And they're telling women to get rid of their spots because there's something wrong with it. When in reality, there's a lot of greatness in femininity. There's a lot of greatness in honing your femininity. And both the feminine and the masculine need each other to work together with each other. So even when I advocate for men, what I'm advocating for is a balance. Not for an overtaking, women have been in charge too long, the men need to be in charge. What I'm advocating for is a balance between the two, where men's voices are equally as important as women. That's the equality that I thought I was growing up in. Uh, but now we've, we've tilted it to the point of uh, women have to feel, in order for women to feel empowered, they must put down men, right? And, and I don't think that has to be the case. Uh, I have a question to ask that I was going to ask before because when you said it was a few questions back and I almost jumped in when you said oh when women go and uh, to to college or university I almost I wanted to press my button and say I have a PhD I have a PhD uh, because <laughs> the question I have for you is I have become obsessed with Kevin Samuels last year and I was when I was reading your book I felt that Kevin would have loved this book you know and um, so I have to ask do you have a perspective on, on, on the late Kevin Samuels? May he rest in peace. Yeah, the, you know what? That was, because when, I, when I, the rumor was going out that he had died, I was like, no way. Mm. You know, this is just mm. some, some stuff going on. Um, Kevin Samuels was definitely impactful, especially with my current relationship. When Kevin started getting out there, you know, he had the, the viral clip and we just started watching I would not just watch it by myself. I was watching it with my, at the time, girlfriend. And we're just watching together. She's like, hold on a second. Then we pause it. And then we talk for an hour or two. And then we play it again. And this is like during the pandemic as well. So we had some time. And we're just watching it and then talking, watching and talking. And, and it gave me an opportunity to give my perspective on stuff as a man. And she gave me her perspective as a woman and, and talked about what he just said. Um, and maybe she interpreted it one way, and I'm like, no, th th he means like this, you know. So it got to a point where she was like, hey, why don't we put on Kevin, you know? Or he had a live stream last night. Let's let's play the live stream. What a woman. This morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, my my wife is very open-minded. Um, she loves me, and so when I say stuff, she listens. It doesn't mean that she believes everything that I say, but she listens to what I have to say. So when we talk about stuff and it makes sense. You know, she leans on being logical, then she's open to, to changing how she sees things. And I think Kevin has been, whether obviously people are going to disagree, I think Kevin introduced the conversation about marriage and the mentality of a lot of black women and how they approach marriage or I, how they don't approach marriage, right? Um, you saw a lot of women, and that's the thing about it. Like, much of his show is actually not him talking. He's letting women speak for themselves and how they see things and what they're saying. And when he speaks, he's holding them to a point, right? He's not allowing them to venture off, to say something flippant and just venture off. He's saying, no, go on that point. What do you mean by that? And 
and you hear a lot of women talk about how they wish they did things differently. Um, you hear the regret in their voice. Now they're 38. Now they're 42. Danger and trying zone. to have children. Right. They're, they're <laughs> in no man's land at that point. Um, you know, so you, you hear all these different things. And what he's trying to show you is that this is a cultural viewpoint. Right. You have black women from all over the country who have the same type of story because culturally we've viewed education as being far more important than family. Uh, or you can just delay that. Uh, you can go through uh, as many men as you want in your 20s. And don't worry, this ideal guy will come and scoop you up in your mid to late 30s. Right. Um, it, it's this this feminist mentality that they've kind of lived their life with, but that mentality only allows you so much success for such a short period of time. And I use success loosely. But I think Kevin was the first black male that I've seen, at least in my generation, to talk about the, the problem and advocate for marriage, um, especially amongst black Americans, but just in general, advocate for marriage and doing it in a healthy way. But also at the same time, calling women under illogical behavior. You know, you're saying one thing and doing a different thing. How does that make sense? Maybe you should look at family as important as you do as working for your job, right? It is a job to be a wife. And if this is what you want to do, you need to do it right. You need to take, you need to take as much interest as you do. Finding a man is finding a job. Um, so I think he was very important. And he, he was let go too soon. Um, mm, yep. you know, in my I opinion. miss him. I miss him already. Yeah. yeah. The the one thing that that really struck struck me when I got into Kevin Samuels and you know I could thank John for that because he would send me clips all the time, is that I just I I just couldn't get over the fact that these highly educated women just had no idea what men found attractive and, and what they what they wanted in a partner. I, I just found that that really fascinating, and that these women they just had such outrageous expectations of of what kind of a man that they would be able to pick up, like you know men that make six figure salaries, men that are a certain height, and you know all these sorts of you know standards that they would would need met before they would consider marrying a guy you know I just found that just blew me away like. How, how are these women so clueless about, you know, what it is guys really want? Like, we appreciate uh, an educated woman and, and someone who is our intellectual equal, but to be honest, like, the average guy doesn't care if you've got four degrees or a PhD, you know. I mean, I think, you know, Kevin sums it up well when he says men are interested in women that are fit, feminine and friendly. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of money to be had lying to women. Uh, and there's also a lot of money to be had making women feel insecure about themselves, which is another um, another topic entirely. But I think lying to women is something that uh, our culture is used to doing, and especially um, black women. Black women have been lied to a lot about what it takes to be successful in life, um, what they need to do uh, to not even just attract people. They just think that existing attracts men which it does to a degree, you know, since men are the hunters, but to keep a man is something different, right? And, and a lot of women confuse, uh, confuse attention as being an overall positive thing. They think because they can have sex, well, that 
a woman having sex is not very difficult. Uh, you know, just open up your phone <laughs> and just call your male friend. You're likely to get him to come over. Um, that's just the way it is. But getting him to stick around, getting him to commit to you, getting him to be uh, hopefully faithful to you is a completely different story. Um, and, and they're almost told to not see themselves as competing with anybody else. Um, when the women who don't subscribe to feminism understand that they're competing for the best possible man. Um, my wife tells me a story when she was in college. She would, see, she would see women go after specific guys, like go after the guys who, the most, most intelligent guys, right? And they might be a little bit nerdy, but they were specifically waiting for them or they'd wait for the athletes to come out, right? They weren't in, in the classroom necessarily always studying and trying to get their PhD. They were waiting for those particular guys. They were waiting for the most successful guys to come out so they can go after them. They were specifically putting themselves in a position to be seen by these particular guys and trying to become wise with them, trying to establish a relationship with them because they saw value in a guy and they understood that these particular guys are rare. And so... Like, he, like Kevin says, it's like a relationship market. Like they don't like it when you relate it to that, but it's, it's almost like supply and demand. And the supply gets short the older they get, right? You know, it's, it's a cruel situation. And I really wish they understood it's a cruel situation, but they're being told to see it with rosy, rosy glasses. Well, I wish we could talk about Kevin and everything else we've talked about uh, for much longer, but we know you've got to run. Just the tiniest little question that we ask all of our guests. We'd love to know what you're reading right now, Adam. Uh, I'm actually not reading anything. I'm writing. <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's, <laughs> we hope to read your book and have you back on the show once it's done. What's the timeline? What are we looking at here? Uh, I started writing it a while ago, and then I stopped. Uh, a number of months ago because I just became too busy, but uh, December I am going full-time with writing um, and expanding on all the different projects that I have going on. So December I'll, I'll, I'll start writing again, um, hopefully sometime next year. Um, I, I, what I'm trying to do is hone in on exactly the point I want to get out of the book. Once I hit that moment, as, as a writer, you get to that point where you're like, I know exactly how I want to see this, then it makes it a lot easier. But hopefully uh, sometime, I would say before mid-2023. Uh, Excellent. Well, we'd love to have you back when, when the book's out and we can chat about it. Absolutely. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.